Well, good evening once again. Uh, the sermon text tonight is Psalm 14, if you'd like to turn there. Psalm 14, a psalm of David, found in the first book of the Psalter, seven verses long. And I will read those seven verses now. This is God's holy word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Almighty God, without you we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine your holy word today by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as frail human beings, we need all sorts of remedies. Um, my family and I have recently gotten over some sickness, uh, the kind of sickness that just seems to be going around this, kind, this time of year, and there's all kinds of remedies that were available to most of us to treat our symptoms. Uh, hot tea with honey, tissues with lotion are especially important when you're blowing your nose that much. A room full of steam can be helpful. And then my favorite is uh, NyQuil. Um, it's not, they're not paying me to say that, but you know, really knocks you out so you can get a good night of rest. Um, so there's all kinds of remedies available to our physical ailments, but what about a remedy for our unmet desires, for justice, for wholeness, for satisfaction? I think living in this world, we all recognize that things are not the way that they should be. The guilty go unpunished, uh, the righteous suffer. No matter where we are or who we're with or what we have, it seems that there's always something missing and it's hard to be completely satisfied. Well, one biblical prescription for these ailments that we experience is hope. For Christians, the Holy Spirit transforms our discontent with life in this world into a virtue by giving us a confident expectation for better things to come, a confidence gained from the guarantee that was the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the hope dwelling in our souls is the hope of Christ. He's promised, just as he rose from the dead, that he will return and raise us from death and bring in the new creation fully. And Psalm 14 points us forward to that hope, we could summarize the message of this song this way. Although God's people live in a godless world filled with sin and corruption, the final day is coming when God will rescue his people and judge the wicked. And we'll see that point come out of this text as we look at its three sections. Foolish humanity first in verses 1 through 4. Second, the frustration of the wicked, 
verses 5 and 6, and then finally future salvation in verse 7. So let's begin with verse 1, where David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This verse gives us a lot to sort through. First, what exactly is a fool? A different images might pop into your mind when you hear that word. You might think of uh, one of your neighbors who seems to lack the average amount of common sense. You might think of a medieval court jester or one of the three stooges. Um, those associations make sense to us because that's usually how we use that word, fool. Uh, but when David writes about the fool, he's talking about something else. He's talking about a person who's not silly or stupid, uh, but who ignores reality. And the chief reality that the fool ignores is the reality of God. The foolish one lives as if God didn't exist, or if he does exist, it doesn't matter because he's not involved in his creation. And so the term fool for David is a moral term. He's not talking about someone uh, who is silly. Again, he's talking about the wicked person, the unrighteous one. And so we should keep that in mind as we're talking about foolish humanity. Verse 1 also gives us what the fool claims in his heart. There is no God. We're used to hearing that claim in our day. Um, we have a culture filled with loud and proud materialistic atheists who claim that there is no God. But David, in his context, is not necessarily saying that the fools that, that he knows are categorically denying God's existence. Everyone in David's day believed in a spiritual world filled with all kinds of beings, gods and, and demons. And so the pagan nations had lots of gods, even the idolatrous Israelite. Maybe they had other gods besides Yahweh, but they still acknowledged the existence of the true God. And so the maxim of the fool, there is no God, doesn't mean that they're intellectual atheists who don't believe in a spiritual world. Instead, they're practical atheists. They know God exists, but they live as if he didn't. This is what Paul tells us is true about all fallen people in the opening chapter to his letter to the Romans. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so the fool disregards God, God's law, and his liability to God's judgment. That's what it means when the fool says there is no God. He's ignoring the reality of God. It's also important to note where this claim is made. David says the fool says this in his heart, which tells us a lot. It means that this is not a superficial claim. It's not just something the fool is, is saying flippantly. He means it. It comes from the, the center of his being. Further, if we think about what the biblical idea of the heart is, we remember there's three components. The mind, the thinking part, the will, the part that chooses, and the desires, the part of your heart that wants things. And so this denial that takes place in the heart could come from any or all of those components. A denial of God from the mind might be the most familiar to us, uh, the kind we see with intellectual atheism. Um, for example, the idea that, that science now answers all the questions that people used to use God to answer, and so we don't need God anymore. Uh, science has disproven him. Or the kind of philosophy that, that tries really hard to, to think their way out of God's existence. A denial of God from the will 
could look more emotional, saying things like, I can't believe in a God who would let this kind of world exist with so much suffering. Or God can't exist or else he wouldn't have let the things that happened to me happen to me. I refuse to believe in God for those reasons. A denial of God from the desires would probably look more like pleasure-seeking. The fool might ignore God's existence in order to pursue the the indulgences of the flesh and of this world uh, with full impunity. I'm sure we've all heard people say things like, if heaven and hell are real, I'd rather be in hell because it sounds like more fun. And so we know people who bring all these kinds of arguments uh, to the floor in order to deny that God exists in their heart. They use these excuses to claim that, that God's not there. The last thing we need to realize about the heart is that it is the center of moral life. And so if a person is committed to living as if God doesn't exist and they have that commitment in their heart, then their behavior will inevitably be sinful. Proverbs famously tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and here we get the reverse. The denial of God is the beginning of folly, and so the fool's immorality comes from his impiety. His, his bad belief, his bad claim leads to bad conduct, which is what we see in the rest of verse 1. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good, and so the fool is corrupt, first of all. He's, he's sinning against others, but his sin also damages himself. He's inflicting wounds upon himself even as he sins against his neighbor. And, and further, the corrupting nature of sin is cyclical. Sin leads to sin, which leads to more and more sin. It's easy to see with a case like lying. Once you lie once, you have to cover up for your lie, and, and it keeps going from there. So sin is corrupting. The fool is corrupt. The fool also commits abominable deeds. An abomination in the Old Testament is something that's morally disgusting in God's sight. And so the fool sins against others, sins against himself, but chiefly his sin is his offense against a holy God who is righteousness itself. And finally, fools not only do all these wrong things, they don't do anything right. There's no one who does good. At this point, someone might reasonably object, well, I know plenty of atheists and unbelievers who do lots of good things. You can think of uh, charity organizations that are set up and run by by those who are not Christians. You can think of all the firefighters and paramedics and, and doctors who save lives even though they don't believe in the Lord that we believe in. I'm sure you can add to this list with plenty of examples of your own. But in God's sight, none of these works are truly good in the sense of earning his blessing and getting into heaven. That will never work. These are filthy rags. If we think about it in in the terms of our catechism, Heidelberg 91 tells us that a good work has three components. It's done out of true faith, according to God's law, and for his glory. And so, Yes, unbelievers, atheists, fools can do lots of things in accord with God's law, but never out of true faith or for his glory. And so if we think of it that way, David's statement can't be argued with. There is none who does good. Verse 4, if we skip verses 2 and 3 for the moment, verse 4 tells us more about the conduct of the fool. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? 
In this rhetorical question, David is pointing out the ignorance of the fool, highlighting the fact that they have no spiritual understanding. They don't understand the depth of their own wickedness or the holiness of the God that they're sinning against. Verse 4 also shows us the reality of foolish oppression. Fools consume people as naturally as they consume bread. Because they're spiritually blind, they don't care what happens to other people. They hungrily oppress their neighbors without a thought. And then finally in verse 4, we see foolish neglect. Fools do not call on the name of the Lord. They don't pray. They don't worship God. These are not things that wicked people do. Calling on the name of the Lord requires faith and spiritual understanding, which is what David has just said that these people don't have. So David tells us about the claim and the conduct of the fool in verses 1 and 4. Because he's decided in his heart to ignore God, the fool acts corruptly and abominably. In verses 2 and 3, we're shown that God agrees with this analysis. In verse 2, God launches an investigation. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. And so right away, we see that the claim the fool made in verse 1 is refuted. God is there, and he is involved in his creation. He's paying attention. The illusion that the fool has that God is, is off somewhere and that he doesn't matter is wrong. David pictures God as if he's leaning out of the window of his heavenly palace to get a closer look at what's going on in the world. And, and what is he looking for? He's looking to see if there's any who understand who seek after him. The Lord is seeking seekers, those who have insight, wisdom, and righteousness. And he stoops down to get a closer look. Of course, he doesn't need to stoop down. This is, this is simply uh, a literary image uh, and it's meant to remind us of the great judgments in Genesis. If you'll remember the flood, Babel, Sodom, in each of these cases, Moses says the Lord looked down or came down to the earth in order to investigate what was going on before sending judgment. And so David is, is making that connection here in Psalm 14. He's telling us that the kind of corruption that he's talking about is the kind that deserves God's divine wrath and judgment. Foolish humanity is inexcusable. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is the conclusion of God's investigation, and it's totally comprehensive. No righteous person has been found who is exempt from God's judgment. So, now we've seen David's description of foolish humanity, and it's a bleak picture. But I wonder tonight, who's come to mind as we've been talking about the fool? Who's the corrupt person who does no good, who does abominable deeds, who oppresses others, who's worthy of divine judgment? If you're like me, the tendency is to point your finger out at other people. The fool is not me. I'm not that corrupt. Abominable is kind of a strong word for my deeds. I do good things sometimes. It sounds more like David's talking about my coworkers or my neighbors or the people I consider my enemies or even other people in this church, but not me. When we think this way, of course, we're, we're not entirely wrong. We live in a sinful world and everybody in it is a sinner. But we're missing something huge if we only point the finger away from ourselves. Because Psalm 14's language is all-encompassing. There's no one who does good. All have turned aside. There is no one who does good, not even 
one. So who's the fool? It's not just the people out there. It's not just the person sitting next to you. It's you. And it's me. And that's what we need to start with, by recognizing the corruption of our own hearts and the abominable deeds that we do. David's point here is reiterated by Paul in Romans 3. He quotes this psalm amid other Old Testament scriptures to make the point that fallen humanity is depraved across the board, no exceptions. Without God's mercy, there's no hope. So I want to impress upon us today that when we read about fools and corrupt ones, we're reading about ourselves. David's describing you. So don't brush that off too quickly, seeking to identify with the righteous group that he'll mention in verse 5. Recognize that by rights you deserve God's wrath. But friends, don't remain in that place. Psalm 14 clarifies the dark depth of human sinfulness, but that only makes Christ shine brighter because Christ was not a fool. He was not corrupt. He was righteous. He did not do abominable deeds. He did good deeds. Throughout his entire life, all he did was good. He pleased God. He had understanding. He sought after God. He didn't consume God's people. He saved them. Brothers and sisters, all of this righteousness of Christ has been credited to you. And so you can identify also with this group called the righteous because by faith you have received our Savior's perfect record. And not only that, but Christ sustained the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. He graciously calls all people, even the most rebellious sinner, to have everlasting life and forgiveness. And so if you haven't trusted in Christ today, come to Him and believe. Today is the day of salvation. He will not turn you away. He will welcome you with open arms to receive forgiveness and life. With verse 5 now, we come to the second section of this psalm. Still speaking of fools, David says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And the obvious question here is, uh, where is there? Where is it that fools will be terror-stricken as they're confronted by the God that they denied? Well, every sinner has pangs and, and small tastes of guilt uh, and impending doom in this life. That's an existential reality for us. But the ultimate dread will come at the divine judgment throne when the sinner who refuses to believe in Christ experiences the great terror of facing God's judgment. On the other hand, however, God is with the generation of the righteous. And here, generation is simply a way of talking about a group of people who share a common quality, and here that quality is righteousness. This is God's people. God will judge the foolish even more harshly because of the way they've treated the righteous. This was the group the Lord called and gathered and chose for himself, his special people. They should have been treated with respect because of who they belonged to, but instead they were consumed like bread. In verse 6, the fool is frustrated in his attempt to humiliate the poor. David says, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The poor is another way of talking about God's people, the people who realize by God's grace that the only resource that matters is God himself. 
The things of this world offer nothing of ultimate value. These are the poor in spirit, as Luke calls them. And so David is pointing out that unbelievers often make a mockery of our faith. Look at the way you're suffering. I guess your God isn't as powerful as you thought. Or maybe he doesn't care about you as much as you say. David experienced this in his own life. You can remember how Goliath taunted him as he faced that Philistine giant. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. And he was ruddy and handsome and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. So David was shamed as the poor by a fool. But we find the prime example of shaming the poor in Jesus' life. Matthew 27 at the end of the chapter, which I'll read from now. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Our Lord suffered. He was shamed. He knew what it meant to be humiliated. But the mockery of fools is not the end of the story, because in the second half of Psalm 14:6, David says that Yahweh is the refuge of the poor. And this is the second time we see God's covenant name being used in this psalm. In verse 2, we saw Yahweh as the ruler of his creation, and now in verse 6, we see Yahweh as the protector of his people. Even in a world overrun by fools who seek to harm them, this special covenantal protection is there. It doesn't mean that those people won't experience any trouble, but it does mean that God will not let ultimate harm come our way. Whether we are in plenty or in want, whether we are starving or fed, rich or poor, God will provide the strength to carry us through all the way to heaven. He'll finish what he started. As we finished our last point, I wanted to emphasize that the fool in verses 1 through 4 that David is talking about is you, and it's me. And yet at the same time, we also see this group called the righteous, and we identify with them because we're people of faith and we've received Christ's righteousness. But it's fair to ask the question, if David emphasized that there was no one righteous so strongly in the first four verses, 
And then suddenly in verse 5, this group appears called the righteous. Is he contradicting himself? What's going on here? Well, the righteous are not called the righteous because of anything they did themselves. Our righteousness comes from God. The only righteousness we can claim is Christ's. He obeyed perfectly and transferred his perfect record to us. So we can identify with God's people. We can place ourselves in the generation of the righteous, not by our own merits, but by the merits of Christ that are counted as ours through faith. But the world we live in isn't so great. Our lives are not perfect. We're afflicted by our own sin, the corruption of it, by the sins of others, by simply living in this world that has been cursed by sin. In this room alone, there's plenty of proof that God's people are a suffering people. But we also read in Psalm 14 about a comfort and a hope for God's suffering people. David gives us a way to think about our experiences living in this evil age. God is our refuge. He's with us. These truths, again, are no guarantee that our, all of our negative circumstances are going to be reversed. We might suffer the rest of our lives without any relief. But Psalm 14 does provide serious encouragement. God is on our side. And remember what the Lord Jesus taught us about our suffering Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Notice the reason we rejoice is the promise of heaven, not that things will get better for us now. In other words, we're a people of hope. We confidently expect ultimate blessing but not in this life. When Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and to bring us into fellowship with him where we will enjoy perfect peace and love and delight in God's presence. And so David has complained that wickedness rules this world, but he's not driven to despair. Psalm 14 ends with this note of confident hope. He cries, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We learn a lot about Zion in the Psalms. Uh, it's God's dwelling place. It's the seat of his majesty. He rules from Zion. He blesses from Zion. He shines forth from Zion. And he saves from Zion. If help for God's people is going to come, it's going to come from his holy mountain, from Zion. And when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. You can see David's confidence here. He says when, not if. Without a doubt, salvation will come. And when it does, he urges God's people to have the only reaction we could have, to rejoice. So yes, for a time we're tormented, we're disgraced by this world, and it appears that we're on the losing side. But in the future, salvation will come. There will be a day when we celebrate the Lord's victory over the whole earth, and that day will be the great day of salvation when our Lord returns in glory. And so the point David is making has come through. Although we live in this world of corruption and sin, God has promised that he will send salvation when his son returns. He will judge the wicked and save his people. 
And we can identify with both of those groups, the wicked and the righteous. We're all corrupt fools who do no good. Apart from Christ, that's true. We can only be described as righteous because of the gift of God. And yes, we still do many things that are foolish and corrupt and abominable. We only have a small beginning of obedience in this life. Nevertheless, we should not play the fool. God has sent his Holy Spirit to create within us a new heart. We belong to God now. And after the Holy Spirit did that work, he didn't didn't leave. He dwells within us now. And he's working in us to transform us by his power into the image of Christ. And so by his power, we can, with all seriousness of purpose, endeavor to follow all of God's commands. And so, as you do that, there's no promise of your life getting better. If anything, we would expect the opposite. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And yet, in confident hope, in anticipation of his return... In our resurrection, we can take comfort. God is with us. He's on our side. And Christ is coming back. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight in Psalm 14. We confess that once we belonged body and soul to the generation of the foolish, we were wholly corrupt. But you, O Lord, intervened. You've shown us an abundance of mercy and given us immeasurable grace in your Son. Because of him and his perfect obedience, we can now be counted among the righteous. What a privilege it is to be able to claim that you are with us and that you are our refuge. So let us not forget where we came from. May we never think that we earned the label righteousness. And help us to pray fervently that the abundance of grace you showed to us would be shown to all those around us, our neighbors and our friends and even those that we think of as enemies whoever it may be that we want to point the finger at and call fool, soften our hearts to desire that they would experience your mercy and not your justice. As we continue to live as pilgrims in this world, far away from our heavenly home, as we continue to suffer and be afflicted, encourage us. May the hope that we've been given in Christ never be far from our minds. Impress it upon our hearts. And Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our offering tonight will be for...